Dear friends, good morning. Uh, good morning on this 13th day of December. And I trust that uh, you all got some rest last night after our lovely, um, lovely day and tea ceremony and sharing. Uh, afterwards, uh, um, Corey said, I want every single thing that everyone shared. It was uh, uh, such an amazingly rich and lovely tea ceremony. Our, uh, our Sangha uh, has the idea that beginning in January, we'll make a note of all of the uh, poems and stories shared during tea ceremony for the year and then share that with uh, members afterwards to have a little book of, uh, a book of tea ceremony readings. So uh, if anyone would like to share what they, uh, what they wrote or, or um, offered last night, uh, maybe we could send it to the Open Way Retreats uh, email and uh, just have a little, little basket of treasures that we can enjoy uh, at another time. So thank you. Uh, I know I feel rested. I'm also a little weary this morning. Um, just, uh, um, I think when we, uh, when we take the time to pause uh, to rest, uh, some of the things that we weren't um, tending to have a, a, a way of surfacing again. Um, and so just, uh, just a tiredness in my body, um, in my mind this morning. And I um, wonder how long that's been there and uh, how long I've been spinning the bucket uh, trying to avoid it. So I hope that uh, you feel rested and that if things are emerging for you this morning or this day that you, um, to be gentle with yourself and to tend to those things and allow uh, whatever is present to be present. Uh, always remembering that we have uh, many other things present as well, um, depending where we put our attention. Um, Yesterday, uh, we were talking about resting, uh, talking about putting down our habit energies, uh, putting down our, uh, our defenses, really, so that we can be with what is in front of us. Uh, much of our days, uh, we spend not necessarily uh, present immediately with what's in front of us. We spend our time uh, relating to um, what we think we are seeing, what our uh, mind is perceiving. Um, and in a very real and biological way, um, we don't experience uh, everything that is in front of us. Uh, our brains filter. Um, and in fact, uh, our minds, uh, our actual physical brains, uh, reach out and touch what we're perceiving and tell our, um, and it has a way of kind of giving itself information back about what we're seeing. So in other words, when you look at an um, optical illusion or you hear an auditory illusion, um, the reason that works and tricks your brain is that you're your brain is reaching out and trying to uh, tell you what you're seeing or hearing. Um, and 
we we actually rarely, uh, if ever, contact the outside world uh, just as it is. We are always constructing uh, the outside world. And we're constructing it in the moment. Uh, we're constructing it also with our entire history of learning, of learned um, behavior, of learned habits. And for me, that's actually very liberating uh, to know that uh, it's always uh, being constructed in my mind. Uh, well, one example I have is uh, years and years ago when I was living in South Korea, uh, the, um, they were describing, uh, a person who was standing next to me was describing the mountains in the distance and used the same word um, to describe the color as the person used to describe the sky. Uh, so it was the exact same color uh, color phrase. And, you know, I thought that was ridiculous, <laughs> to be honest. It was like, no, they're absolutely very different. You know, one is kind of greenish, one is uh, this royal blue. Um, but over time, uh, spending time there, uh, my perception changed. Um, and I was able to touch what that person was touching uh, through that word, uh, through that word and description of the color. The outside world itself hadn't changed at all, but the way that I perceived and interpreted that information changed. Uh, and we can think of other examples uh, in our own lives of this too. Um, uh, the Buddha, uh, and in the sutras, they talk a lot about when we perceive a uh, rope in the path and uh, our mind tells us that it's a snake. Mm -hmm. And I would say that it is a snake until we perceive it as a rope. Um, and these, uh, these aspects of our thinking and of our... Um, of our perception uh, allow us to uh, have some freedom and flexibility uh, in our lives so that we're not, um, so that we can put a little spaciousness around our perceptions because we already know that we're not perceiving uh, the outside world as it is. So let's put some spaciousness around it. And that has a wonderful, capacity of opening our, ourselves up to seeing other people's perceptions, um, to trying to understand, you know, how is it that you are seeing this world, perceiving this world? Um, I sometimes uh, uh, will switch seeing and perceiving, and so uh, apologies for that. I'll, I'll try to be um, clear when I'm talking about actual sight. Um, and uh, just perception in general. Um, and this, uh, this practice of uh, understanding, of trying to understand is what our uh, world and what our culture desperately needs right now. Um, I think of uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, the years 
in years that organization has spent trying to change the perception of, um, of white people so that um, we're, able not, we're able to actually see what they are seeing, what the Black Lives Matter organization is seeing. Uh, the same is true with um, the feminism. The same is true with uh, disability rights advocates, uh, trying to uh, change the perceptions of the people um, because they are uh, experiencing a truth that uh, that is real and trying to share that with other people. And this is a powerful practice uh, and one that our uh, Engage Buddhism is asking us to do, to step into the shoes of other people, uh, to listen deeply. Uh, that is what Avalokita it, does when she listens deeply. She not just listens to the words and to the feeling and to the heart, but to the perceptions, to the understandings, to the views, so that she can um, offer that love from a place of uh, um, profound understanding. Um, and likewise, this practice is helpful for um, people for whom we disagree, uh, with whom we disagree. Uh, so opposing political parties um, and uh, family members. Um, it becomes a little difficult, of course, uh, and what we're experiencing now, it's difficult when um, information is intentionally left out uh, or warped. Um, and um, I'm kind of skirting around uh, just this idea of conspiracy um, and how to work with uh, conspiracy theory and when you're presented with it. Um, sadly, uh, when there is a person um, who is so deeply enmeshed in the conspiracy theory, uh, there really uh, is, it's almost impossible uh, to uh, reach out and transform that view with that person. Uh, we might not have conspiracy theories, but I bet we have views in ourselves that are like that, that um, we hold on to very, very tightly and uh, do not wish to change. Um, and also, unfortunately, uh, conspiracy theory um, advocates tend to be the most vocal. And so uh, I would encourage us uh, to remember that just like uh, when there's suffering, there's also joy. Uh, when there's conspiracy theory, when there is um, public figures saying uh, complete untruths, that they are uh, a true minority uh, and that there is uh, a large number of uh, people who are, um, who might believe it, but also might not be as entrenched uh, in that thinking. And I share that because I know that uh, I um, 
I struggle uh, with some of the things that I read and see in our world. I struggle very deeply. Um, for years, I've been struggling with uh, people who are denying climate change. And I've noticed the narrative shifts, but there's always a, um, it used to be that climate change isn't real at all. And now it's, uh, it's part of a natural cycle. Um, and it's moving a little bit towards, well, humans might cause some of it, but uh, not all of it. And so it's, it is moving, the discourse is moving, um, but um, there's always the next thing to minimize it. Um, and we see this now with our election uh, and with other aspects in our world that um, denying uh, people's experience, uh, denying reality. And I say that on purpose. Uh, I know I just said that uh, reality uh, outside doesn't exist, but there is, um, um, there, there are things in the world that have just happened and that uh, we can agree on. It's, uh, it's just because they're constructed uh, in our minds doesn't mean that uh, there isn't some element of that that actually has happened. Um, and when I, when I have these uh, feelings of uh, fear, of anxiety, of frustration, um, this resting, uh, this pausing, becomes an even ever more uh, important practice. Um, and I think often of this writing by Ruth Gendler. Uh, she is a artist and poet and wrote this uh, little, little book with uh, small illustrations called The Book of Qualities. And I would like to read to you her description of fear. Um, Fear has a large shadow, but he himself is quite small. He has a vivid imagination. He composes horror music in the middle of the night. He's not very social and he keeps to himself at political meetings. His past is a mystery. He warned us not to talk to each other about him adding that there is nowhere any of us could go where he wouldn't hear us. We were quiet. When we began to talk to each other, he changed. His manners started to seem pompous and his snarling voice sounded rehearsed. Two dragons guard Fear's mansion. One is ceramic, the other is real. If you make it past the dragons and speak to him close up, it's amazing to see how fragile he is. He will try to tell you stories. Be aware, he is a master of disguises and illusions. Fear almost convinced me that he was a puppet maker and I was a marionette. Speak out boldly and look him in the eye, startle him. Don't give up. Win his respect, and he will never bother you with small matters. Um, and I share that because um, I appreciate that uh, invitation that uh, there, there is element of uh, danger, right? The 
dragon, one is ceramic and one is real. Um, and there's also uh, this element of befriending uh, fear, getting to know it, um, getting to know our anxiety. Um, I know that uh, when I am feeling that anxiety and that fear, it becomes larger because I don't take that time to pause, uh, to rest, and to actually uh, let it speak to me. What is this anxiety about? Uh, I do have a fear for the future of our planet. That's real. That's there. Um, but it also, um, the fear itself uh, is somewhat fragile uh, because right around the corner, right next to it is um, the ability to move forward for action, uh, for loving action. And so in our times right now of, of uh, half-truth, uh, it, it's sometimes called the post-truth era, um, it's important uh, for um, us as practitioners to not let fear um, loom with his large shadow, to remember how small it is uh, so that we can touch and connect um, and show our love. Yesterday, someone spoke about um, so much of this uh, practice uh, is about connection. And uh, that, is, that is all this practice is about, is connection. Um, connection to ourselves, uh, connection to others, connection to the world, connection to our story, um, and relationship. And when our, um, when our ability to pause and rest is strengthened, um, it also strengthens our relationship to these other parts, to, the, to other people around us, to ourselves, and um, to our story. It doesn't, uh, when I say strengthen our relationship to our story, I don't mean that it uh, strengthens our story, um, but rather we are able to see the relationship um, more clearly and we're able to understand our story and our habit energies uh, more clearly. In our sutra yesterday, uh, the discourse on the middle way the Buddha spoke about this is because that is. This is not because that is not. It's a discourse on relationship, um, a discourse on the way that uh, everything is interconnected and related one thing to another. And later in that discourse, uh, he spoke about uh, the interdependent chain of co-arising. Uh, we heard that in the Heart Sutra as well. In the older version we recite, it's that line that says from ignorance to death and decay. And in the insight that brings us to the other shore that Zan offered us yesterday, uh, it's just named as the uh, interdependent chain of co-arising. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, those 12 links today, uh, this morning, as a way of getting us into the now and into the present. Um, and also, I was uh, thinking in relation uh, to our uh, 
bucket analogy yesterday that uh, thinking about the links in the core in this co-arising in this interdependent co-arising uh, they are all connected to each other much the way that when we're spinning a bucket around that it's connected to the person uh, who is spinning it so it's not uh, necessarily a uh, this thing causes this thing and then this next thing causes this next thing but rather they are all uh, causing each other at the same time. Uh, they're presented sequentially, but they are all part of one uh, complete aspect of our existence. Um, that's why they are co-arising. Uh, they arise together. Uh, they support each other. And there's many different parts and places to stop on, uh, or to start rather, on this chain, because uh, there isn't one place that starts the whole thing. Uh, traditionally, uh, we're often given ignorance as the first link of the chain. And here, ignorance just simply means uh, not uh, seeing clearly, not having, as in the sutra it said, not having right view, uh, not being able to um, touch uh, reality as it is. And again, um, when we anything that we're perceiving is not exactly reality as it is. Reality as it is is something else altogether. Uh, it's through our perceptions, but it's underneath our perceptions or around our perceptions. Um, it's not, uh, um, it is not our, our perceptions themselves. Uh, and I think many of us have had this experience, uh, whether inside this practice or outside of this practice, where um, even for a moment, things just drop away. Uh, there's no, um, the way I like to think of it is we're not adding anything. Um, we're not uh, creating anything new. We are just there, just experiencing. And that uh, it's not the perceptions that are reality, but it's that uh, experience of not adding anything uh, that is beginning to touch at reality as it is. And so when we start with uh, ignorance and not seeing clearly, um, the next part of uh, that, uh, and again, I'm going to follow the traditional sequence, uh, but of course, uh, uh, I'll also speak a little bit about how they're all interconnected. But next in that sequence is our um, impulses or our volition. Uh, so out of not seeing clearly, um, we act, we have a, a, can think of this impulses or volition as our habit energy. Um, if uh, I am used to seeing the sky and the mountains as different colors, um, then my uh, impulse is to see them as different colors. My habit energy, uh, the way that I uh, will perceive um, will be mediated through that, uh, not seeing clearly, not being, um, open in that moment. 
And so from our impulses uh, comes our consciousness. Uh, the, uh, uh, the field of our uh, perceptions, the field uh, through which we encounter reality. Um, this isn't the consciousness that's associated with thinking. Uh, this is the consciousness that's associated with being, uh, with existing, um, with the way that we encounter the world. Um, part, uh, it's informed by our view, by our history, by our culture. Um, it's all the pieces that contribute to um, uh, pointing our mind in our impulses, our habits, to see things in a particular way, um, that kind of consciousness, uh, to perceive things in a particular way. From our consciousness emerges our, um, our mind, our thinking mind, and actually our body, uh, the way that we uh, interact with the world. Um, our body and all the parts of our body, our um, preferences, Again, uh, when I lived in Korea, the um, two three-year-olds would eat uh, spicy kimchi, pickled cabbage. Uh, and, um, you know, if I think if you were to bring a child from uh, the United States who didn't grow up eating uh, spicy pickled cabbage, uh, that child would not enjoy it. <laughs> um, and uh, it, so it's, that's kind of how the body is shaped by this consciousness. All those, all those seeds are laid very, very early. Um, and I'm sure uh, there are foods and uh, sights and experiences that, um, that you have that are not shared by everybody else, but are shared maybe in your family system, are shared in your friend network. Um, and these are very deep. Uh, and part of our um, uh, of our uh, development. Uh, often they're shaped even before we are born, uh, depending on what uh, your mother was eating or doing. Uh, those preferences uh, become part of us. And so with our um, mind and body, uh, we have our uh, sense organs. Uh, and in that sutra, it mentioned the six senses. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're used to hearing about the five senses. And in Buddhism, we talk about the six senses, but I think it's important to, to remember that outside of the ear, eye, nose, tongue, body is the mind. The mind is considered a sense in, um, in the Buddhist context. Uh, in this mind is our thinking, discursive mind. And just like the eye perceives um, things outside of the body, uh, the mind's objects of perceptions are thoughts. Uh, so this is, even though the mind is considered a sense organ, it's also uh, uh, internal. It kind of references itself. Um, and the mind uh, touches all of the other sense organs, as we already uh, mentioned, um, the way that we hear things. Uh, 
I learned recently that when you uh, hear something uh, incorrectly, uh, so if somebody says a word and you hear it as another word, uh, you're not actually hearing it uh, incorrectly. You are hearing what you've heard. So in other words, your brain uh, and mind are um, interacting with uh, the sound waves to uh, create this experience. Uh, mediated by your past experience, uh, mediated by your expectations. Uh, so you're, you're actually perceiving it in that way, just like the rope in the path. You are perceiving it as a snake. It truly is a snake until you get some more information that says that it's not. Um, it truly is what you thought you heard until you get some more information that it's not. Um, this is very uh, powerful. Uh, for me, it, it uh, inserts that aspect of uh, our practice, are you sure, into just the ex daily experience of living. Um, we get some spaciousness around our perceptions and not clinging too tightly to them, not clinging too tightly to the... Um, to reality as it is, uh, to what we think we are perceiving as reality as it is. Um, uh, it doesn't mean that we're crippled with doubt <laughs> all of the time. Uh, and that um, what it does mean is, you know, if, if I say something and someone later says, well, you never said that, instead of, say, instead of arguing about well, yes, I did say that and getting into that whole argument, you say, oh, well, okay, but I'm saying it now, <laughs> right? It's, uh, this is what, it's, it's not so important what happened. Um, sometimes it is important how, how we got there. And, uh, but most of the time in our uh, daily interactions, it's not that important. Uh, this is an aspect in my home that uh, drives me bonkers actually uh, is, we spend so much of our time trying to parse out exactly what happened and who said what, when, and, and uh, we get stuck. We're not able to move on. Um, we're not able to say, okay, well, here's where we are now. Let's, let's engage in this way. Um, and that is uh, um, the reason for that, of course, is that it's very difficult to let go of um, the fact that we might not be perceiving reality uh, exactly as it is. Uh, we might not be perceiving things just as they are. That's, it's a scary feeling to let go of that, uh, to actually say, well, maybe that did happen. I don't know uh, because boy, when I remember something, I, I remember, you know, I feel like, you know, feel in here that I'm remembering it just as it happened, like a photograph or a video. But of course we know that, um, to be frank, our memories are garbage. Um, our memories are creating things. Uh, the more that we remember something, uh, the more we change it. Uh, and in fact, vividness of a memory does not uh, in, is not correlated at all with uh, reality. Um, 
a vivid memory of something, uh, the more we kind of rehearse it, the more we add uh, because our view is different. And so we're injecting our view back into that memory. Um, but um, in my uh, family of origin and in my current family, uh, there's a high premium on uh, remembering things exactly and uh, being right. So we get into a lot of conflicts because it's hard uh, for me and it's hard for my kids who were trained, unfortunately and fortunately, by me uh, and my wife uh, to figure out what, what exactly happened. Um, but uh, so that uh, so that mind is a sense organ in addition to our other senses. Um, the next step is that uh, those sense organs reach out and make contact with the outside world. Um, contact with either our thinking, if it's the mind, or contact with um, the things that we're hearing, seeing, touching, smelling, etc. Um, so, um, so that reaching out is part of that chain and that actual contact. And when that contact arises between um, the sense organs, uh, the next part that emerges uh, with all of this is feeling. Um, usually it can be thought of uh, in terms of preference, um, neutral, uh, positive, or negative feeling. But you can already see from some of the examples that I gave how that feeling itself is mediated by our view, by our ignorance, um, by... Um, by our um, uh, conditioning, uh, which is why, uh, I think which is why ignorance is often put as the first part because that it has this way of pervading uh, all the other parts. But you can also see how it can work the other way, how um, creating a, a neutral or a pleasant feeling around something can go back and uh, uh, influence our uh, view, our ignorance, and it can shape that uh, so that the next time we encounter something, it, it, it emerges again. It's very powerful, this um, in interdependent co-arising. And after that feeling emerges, that um, neutral, pleasant or unpleasant feeling, and then all of the nuances that go with that uh, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings, uh, our craving comes about, uh, or our desire. Uh, the desire may be a negative desire. I don't want to experience that again. Um, you know, I tried this new food, and uh, I remember my mother, uh, when she first tried sushi, it kind of went in and came out like <laughs> within, uh, you know, half a second. It was like, I'll try that, boop, boop, right back in the hand. It was, uh, nope, not for me. Right. It's uh, but that's that kind of desire, right? It's that desire of um, um, of not experiencing something, uh, or uh, this is wonderful. I want more of this. Um, when am I going to have this again? Um, when am I going to be able to go to Flathead Lake again? We all have a little bit of that desire. Uh, that craving to be there because it's a pleasant experience. Um, but notice that uh, 
that the arising of that uh, isn't um, isn't necessarily good or bad. I don't want us to think in those terms. It's just what comes about. Um, wanting to go back to Flathead Lake isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, because it, it motivates us to uh, create that environment to make sure that we can rent the place uh, to, to be there again. Um, and not liking a particular food isn't a bad thing. Uh, I wrote a, an article uh, in our Missoulian about um, one of the, the minds of love, the sympathetic joy. And uh, my son had in, uh, encapsulated it perfectly, whereas describing this recipe to Corey, um, and he said, oh my gosh, that sounds so good. He's like, I would never eat that, but it sounds really good. <laughs> and I was so taken by that. That was amazing to me, um, where he was able to recognize like that combination of ingredients would be delicious. And it's also something that he wouldn't like. I mean, how powerful is that to be able to um, uh, acknowledge and touch and to feel into that um, experience of somebody else very deeply, knowing how much that someone else would enjoy that and knowing that it's not something that you yourself would enjoy. Um, it's much more noble than what I usually do, which is to say, oh, that sounds gross, right? <laughs> um, or, uh, ooh, how can you eat that? I don't like that at all, right? <laughs> it's, um, um, but it's that uh, uh, he was able to kind of get under that craving, uh, under that, really under that ignorance of that worldview that um, uh, just because I don't like something doesn't mean that uh, everybody else would. And in fact, I can see how someone else would like it. It's a pretty innocuous uh, example and uh, might get into some uh, deeper things uh, later, but it, it's helpful to illustrate that, that point. Um, and then with that craving, with that desire comes grasping, uh, attachment, holding on, holding on to um, wanting more, holding on to not wanting it, holding on to not noticing in the case of a neutral experience. Um, so that uh, um, clinging uh, to our worldview, uh, can even think of it in that way. And there's that ignorance in there again, uh, kind of feeding all through all of these. Um, and likewise, that clinging to uh, a preference, uh, clinging to uh, an ex a feeling um, feeds back into our view of how things should be. And because of that um, clinging uh, to this worldview, clinging to things as they are, uh, what comes up next is uh, bringing things, uh, coming to be, bringing things into existence. Um, so far, right, these first um, 11 steps have all been kind of an internal process uh, and happening very, very rapidly uh, together emerging at the same time. And now we bring something into the world. 
we bring into the world um, our uh, our actions, uh, our the way that we engage with the world. It um, creates uh, this potential. Uh, it now is uh, coming to be. And because of uh, bringing this into existence, the uh, idea in of birth emerges. And birth here means both our, uh, both birth in the sense of um, it now, uh, from what seems like nothing, now there is something. Um, when we think of birth in that way. Um, but also uh, the very um, real and natural idea that, uh, that we are born, uh, that something comes from nothing, that our children are born or the people around us are born. Um, and then when we have this idea of birth, we also have uh, death, grief, sorrow, uh, and then um, because we have, uh, and then it, the reason it's called a chain is that when we have death, uh, these ideas of, of something going to nothing, right? And that's this, if birth is coming from nothing, death is going to nothing. Uh, we have grief, we have sorrow, and that feeds back into our worldview of um, how things are. Um, and I love in that sutra, it says when you, you know, pull the pin out, right? When you change your view, uh, when you develop right view, it says that whole mass of suffering ceases to come into being. Um, and so um, it's not just that, uh, well, we will continue to have our sense organs. Uh, we will continue to have a view. Uh, we will continue to have feeling. We will continue to have um, consciousness, grasping. Um, as long as we are in these bodies, we will have that. Um, but I bring this up because um, our practice of resting our practice of pausing can allow our experience of uh, our views to soften, to loosen, uh, to have some spaciousness around them. And when we do that, it puts spaciousness around that whole experience, uh, that whole mass of suffering and in fact, uh, it can have the effect of transforming that entire chain into something um, that supports us more in the practice, that supports us more in um, developing a right view. An easier way to think of that chain is what the Buddha originally said in that sutra, which is this is because that is, this is not because that is not. That's the entire interdependent chain of co-arising um, in a little more concise form. Uh, the other parts are just showing some more granular aspects of that, um, places to look. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so this is, right? Ignorance is feeling, desire, craving, birth, death. This is because that is. Um, all of those things are there because they're all supporting one another. Uh, this is not because that is not. Um, our ignorance, our craving, our contact with the outside world is not because we don't have these other parts. They're not supporting one another. Very, very simple um, and very difficult. Uh, there's many examples in the sutras of the Buddha uh, enjoying his senses, um, looking out, seeing a beautiful landscape or a beautiful flower. Um, but it wasn't creating more of this chain, uh, more of these co-arising things, because underneath there was the that spaciousness and that rest underneath it. Uh, there was um, not uh, not confusing our sensory experience with reality, not confusing our um, our habitual way of engaging with the world as actually being uh, the world as it is. This is getting at the um, ultimate dimension. Um, the Buddha had a body, we have bodies. Uh, the Buddha has sense organs, we have sense organs. I'm sure the Buddha had desires. Um, we also have desires. Um, because we are in these bodies, uh, because we have this gift of being together, uh, of being together as human beings and being together in community. Um, and we have the capacity to, uh, uh, in the moment, pause and to put this um, experience uh, without creating anything else, without putting more of our story in it, without putting more of our uh, aversion or grasping into it. Um, sometimes uh, when we think about uh, karma, uh, cause and effect, um, the sutras talk about how the Buddha uh, at his moment of enlightenment uh, stopped uh, creating um, more karma, more cause and effect. But because of uh, the fact that he was in a body, he spent the rest of his life burning off all of the other uh, karma uh, that he had inherited. Uh, so when we're not adding uh, things to the experience, it's a way of kind of loosening that uh, cause and effect. Uh, we're, not, um, we're not creating more suffering. Um, but we uh, um, are allowing uh, that rest, that pause. I think of it. Um, I think of it a little bit like uh, when we take the time to uh, rest, uh, to put the spinning bucket down, um, and then we actually get to experience the uh, contents of the bucket, the water. Um, there's a, a tendency 
sometimes for the practice to be used as a way of um, maybe pausing, but also a way of um, avoiding the uh, contents of the bucket, uh, avoiding what's inside. And we mentioned that yesterday. Um, but I like to think of our practice as uh, kind of extending our hand and just gently pouring that water onto our hand, pouring the contents there. Our hand is our mindfulness. Our hand is our pause, our rest. Our hand is our not adding anything else. And when we do that, the water uh, touches us. It touches our hands. Um, our life, our experience, our sorrow, our joy touches us. And then it continues to run off. Um, we don't try to hold on to it. Uh, we don't try to um, push it away. Um, but we do contact it. We do put our, uh, our attention, our, our experience into that place without uh, experiencing or contacting that water. Um, we're not really engaged in the practice. Um, we might be uh, protecting ourselves for a time and that's okay. Um, but if our habit is to uh, not experience um, the contents of the bucket, not experience our life, um, to not experience our joy and our sorrow, um, but to uh, try to manage it uh, by um, engaging in something that something else, uh, breathing or avoiding, um, then our uh, our practice uh, won't grow and develop. It won't um, it won't show us anything. It'll just show us how not to touch it. Um, and for me, and I think for a lot of us. Um, it can be a little intimidating to reach out and to touch that experience. Uh, also in that sutra we read yesterday, it says, um, when suffering arises, a person, a wise person, I can't remember the word that they used, uh, uh, knows that it is um, arising. So the Buddha never said that uh, we'll be, well, he did say that we'll be free of suffering, but, um, Suffering arises, um, suffering created by that links of uh, interdependent co-arising. Um, it comes to be. And as a practitioner, if we avoid uh, that truth, um, if we avoid the fact that we do suffer, um, we don't uh, have an opportunity to transform, uh, to transform our worldviews. So uh, reaching out and, and touching the water um, changes the water. Uh, the heat from our hand warms it, or uh, if the, or it might cool it, depending. Um, it changes it. It transforms it. It changes the course of it. Um, but we do have that uh, that capacity uh, to experience uh, what it is. This has been a difficult lesson for me personally. Um, 
I wanted uh, I wanted my practice to free me from experiencing things. <laughs> I wanted it to free me from experiencing sadness or grief, um, fear. I didn't want those things. And I wanted, uh, that, there's a little craving there, a little desire. I also wanted uh, this practice to um, make me joyful and happy uh, and serene and to cultivate equanimity. And it does all of those things. Um, and what I found is that the only way that I can develop the joy, the equanimity, the happiness is to also deeply touch the other parts, uh, the grief, the sorrow, uh, the joy, um, the fear, deeply touching all of those. Um, because uh, if I develop a practice of avoiding those difficult ones, the ones that I don't want, uh, I also at the same time develop a practice of avoiding the other ones uh, because I'm just denying some experience, uh, denying part of my experience. It's, um, it's a, a powerful tool for our transformation to allow ourselves um, to be sad to experience grief without pushing it away. Because then we're not grasping. And we do know that um, grief uh, might be co-arising with, uh, with our ignorance, with our worldview, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> Uh, it doesn't matter that it is because it is arising. Um, and so when we touch it, then we touch the capacity. We touch our ability to then transform, uh, to start to see things uh, differently. Um, and uh, this has been difficult for me um, because uh, um, I kind of wanted a shortcut from the body in the body to the consciousness in the consciousness. I didn't want the feelings in the feelings. <laughs> I didn't want those. Uh, I wanted to have um, uh, kind of a cool, serene experience. Um, and what I found is that uh, a cool and serene experience is also pretty flat. Uh, and it's also um, not really uh, honest with what my experience is. Uh, and this, uh, this practice for me has uh, allowed uh, my heart to be touched uh, much more deeply than it ever was before. Um, and that includes the difficult, the sorrow, uh, and it includes the, the joy. The amplitude of the experience uh, you know, increased. The peaks and the valleys um, increased, but also the um, the duration uh, shortened. So, um, avoiding sorrow uh, allows sorrow to to just stay. 
but touching sorrow allows it to flow over, just like pouring water over the hand. Um, we touch it, we experience it, we rest, we pause, breathe, and then something else arises. It always does. Um, I think of um, uh, the story of uh, Kisa Gotami. Uh, she was the woman who came to the Buddha with her uh, child who had died. And uh, the Buddha very kindly said to her that he would help her once uh, she was able to gather a mustard seed from a home that wasn't touched by grief. Um, he didn't tell her, uh, oh, you know, this whole experience that you have is based on ignorance, right? That, that would have been cruel uh, to, to this person. But what he did was he encouraged her to go into the world and um, to touch uh, not just her grief, but the grief of every person uh, in the community. And eventually, uh, you know, she realized uh, in the world. And so she did that. She went to house to house asking for a mustard seed from these family members who, um, and said, uh, has your house been touched by grief? And all of them, of course, said, yes, we all have been. And what that did was it didn't uh, make her grief go away. Uh, her sorrow over losing her child uh, did not uh, stop because of that. But what happened was uh, she touched into the, she found community and she touched into this um, collective uh, experience. Um, she touched into um, the fact that she wasn't alone in her grief. And what that did was it had the capacity or it had the, the um, effect of changing her relationship to her grief. Uh, because it wasn't just hers anymore. It belonged to all of us. Um, did she stop experiencing grief? Of course not. Uh, she never will. Um, but uh, it, her relationship to it changed. And so that is um, what I mean by allowing things to touch us. Uh, it puts things into context. It changes our relationship to them. Otherwise, it becomes that uh, shadow of fear from that reading by Ruth Gindler. Um, it's very small, but it has this huge shadow. And until we actually approach it, we don't see how small it actually is. Um, please don't uh, confuse me saying that uh, the fear is small with saying that the grief of losing a child is small. Um, it's not necessarily that uh, the experience is small, but the shadow is often much larger than the experience itself and um, the fear of approaching. Uh, so this, um, this is a way of uh, understanding our experience in the now, uh, no, noticing how our, um, our view and our experience and our grasping, our um, coming to be, our birth and death, uh, all of that comes about in this moment, um, each moment that we engage. 
uh, each moment that we are uh, in these bodies. And uh, resting has the, gives us the opportunity for touching the, um, uh, touching something underneath of that, uh, transforming that um, experience into, uh, into an experience of spaciousness, of connection, of, um, of curiosity, of love, uh, so that we can be much more present uh, with ourselves, with our community, with our family, and with our world. So, thank you.